Golden Girl, Part 2 Aberfan, Wales, 1970 If you have not already done so, we suggest you first listen to The Golden Girl, Part 1. It was to be four years before Mags and I met again. By then, we were both wives and mothers. During that time, we had been living in Armidale, New South Wales, while JC had worked as a tutor at the University of New England, at the same time working on his PhD. In a world without formal childcare, I had managed to find a friend with a daughter the same age as Stevie, and we had shared a job in a community development programme where I had worked with city-dwelling Aborigines. A culture shock for anybody, let alone a 21-year-old straight out of swinging 60s London. It had been difficult without public transport, one car, no telephone, and, to begin with, no friends. But we had fallen in love with this sun-drenched land. And the bonus was that we were soon able to buy our own small three-bedroom house on a quarter-acre block, which bordered on the golf course on one side and the city dump on the other. Max too had embraced change. Ron the Welsh, a.k.a. Taffy, had not believed his luck meeting up with a gorgeous, intelligent young woman on a one-night stand and had made an honest woman of her within weeks of that first night they met. They had then both gone to live in Wales so that Taffy could go back to his old, more lucrative trade of being a coal miner. Like me, and about the same time, Mags had produced a son, called Tim, but a year or so after had also produced a daughter, Sarah. All this information had been dispensed by snail mail, sea post, that took six weeks delivery, unless of course one lashed out the expense of one shilling and threepence for airmail delivery, and that merely took a week or two. And now we were on our way to Ottawa, Canada, so that JC could take up a postdoctoral fellowship. But we were going to enjoy a six-week stopover back in the UK. Of course, JC's mum was thrilled to meet up with her grandchild, who at three and a half years was still at a cute age. But we quickly found that returning to our homeland and adolescent childhoods as relatively successful academics parents and homeowners, was not viewed in quite the way we had imagined. Just to give an example, when meeting up with a couple of boyhood friends of JC, they greeted us with enthusiastic smiles. So, where have you been? What have you been doing? Haven't seen you for a while, was said among the prolific exchange of handshakes and thumps on back. We've been to Australia, where we bought a house had a child, JC obtained a PhD, I'm working on mine, and are now about to go to Canada for a two-year postdoctoral fellowship with the National Research Council, was our equally enthusiastic response, although not quite relayed with that arrogance. How about you? The smiles remain. Oh, well, much the same. We're still living with Mum and Dad. A short pause. Well, you missed a great game at the Fushy last week. With nothing more to talk about, we all took our leave. 
As soon as courteously possible, we borrowed my father's car and drove to Aberfan in Wales, where Mags and Taffy now lived. We knew of it by name, for it had been the place of national tragedy a few years earlier, when 116 children and 28 adults had perished. Millions of tons of excavated mining debris had become dislodged after days of heavy rain, sliding down the hillside onto a score beneath. We got a taste of how this could happen as the weather was atrocious all the way through the somewhat depressing barren hills of Wales. With no telephones in the village, we had been a little vague of our time of arrival. Even so, Mags and Taffy were waiting for us at the front door when we arrived. But then, as Mags was to say later, that's Wales for you. Once a foreigner sets foot on the land, the Welsh grapevine takes over. I took stock of my lovely friend and was thrilled to see her looking beautiful and radiant again. The acne was now just a faint scar, the hair long and in a single braid wrapped around her head. And with nine-month-old baby Sarah carried Welsh papoose style inside a shawl draped around her back, she looked like a modern-day Madonna. This was a whole new Mags. Remember, I had first met a trendy young girl of the sizzling 1960s revolution, lost her as a bride, and met up with her as a much-travelled woman of the world, only to lose her again. Now, another woman stood before me. She looked so serene, I thought, so much at home in this little village as she was in the big city, and once again I envied her composure and confidence. It had been raining the day we arrived, and indeed, it rained every day for a week. So much so that grass began to grow inside Father's car. Taffy had taken a few days off from work to show us around. But as one hillside village looked much the same as another, there was little to stimulate us. The cramped conditions of the car were equally mirrored in the confined quarters of the cottage, we had forgotten how small rooms were in standard English homes, which were considered spacious compared to a Welsh miner's cottage. This was not helped by the fact that their three-year-old Tim and our three-year-old Stevie decided to hate each other to a point of mortal alienation. They kicked, bit, hit and punched each other. They whacked and smacked and yelled and screamed. They were not happy little lads. Naturally, I sympathised more with Stevie. Since birth, he had enjoyed daily sunshine and the opportunity to run feral in no more than a pair of briefs covering his three-year-old masculinity. He was finding the restrictions of heavy weather clothing and inside play abysmal. As adults, JC and I fared little better and were only too aware that four years in Australia had changed our perspectives on many things. Naturally, I conveyed these higher ideals to Mags when I constantly extolled our lifestyle in comparison to the one she now endured. It was a bad move, but I was not to know of that until years later. There was little doubt that Taffy adored her and would do anything he was able to make her happy. But therein lay the problem. A miner living in a miner's village has few opportunities to do anything other than supply the necessities. I thought of the life that had been hers before she had stuffed up the opportunities of a university education or, 
as she had briefly chosen, a well-paid, glamorous job, utilizing her many skills. Add to that, she had turned her back on a handsome husband, from well-to-do family, with excellent career prospects of his own, where both of them could have been surrounded by friends of similar ilk, whereas now, her life was more in tune with Brigadoon on a bad day. But, true to form, Mags did not describe it that way. She obviously adored her children and was fond of Taffy. The neighbouring wives were simple and for the most part uneducated, with few having left the village. Fewer still had any interest in life outside of it. Talk and gossip was limited to the growth of their progeny and life in the mines, which was grim. Although remuneration was considered high, the loss of life was also high, and a constant blanket over day-to-day living. Yet, as the neighbours just called in while passing by, obviously to check us out, there was little doubt that in less than four years, Mags had achieved what many never did in a lifetime. She fit in. A rare privilege. Somehow Mags had achieved the impossible. Whereas for the most part, all that were not born within a hundred miles of Aberfan were considered foreigners, Mags was totally accepted within the community on an equal footing with those who could boast three generations still living. Being a village, there was little more than one grocery store, a post office and pub within walking distance, and a daily bus to Swansea, which even now boasts little more than 40,000 inhabitants. What we considered disastrous weather was considered normal, and from a housewife's point of view, a good part of the day was taken up washing, and, of more importance, trying to dry clothes. With a minor husband and two small children, one still in nappies, well, I'll leave that to your imagination. The best we can say of our six-day holiday is that we muddled through. Short trips in the car fighting the rain and our kids, numerous cups of tea and a veritable war zone between the boys at mealtimes. Our one highlight was an evening trip to the local pub to listen in to the local male choir and this was memorable. With the next-door neighbour gamely looking after the kids, just after dinner the four of us piled into father's car, which was now growing copious mould on the inside canvas roof. This was the one night a week when the miners gathered to sing. No conductor, no piano, no sheet music, just a group of blokes, pints in hand, casually sitting or standing around the tiny pub, wives and family equally casual beside them. A leader tapped a brittle intro on his tankard with a knife, and three dozen male voices came in on cue in perfect harmony. Hey, hey, hey. 
For an hour or so, JC and I sat mesmerised and disbelieving that these still soot-grimed men, attired in rough trousers, pullovers and boots, went from one classic song to another with ease and a sound equal to the most acutely rehearsed choir. I looked over to Mags, who both fit in and stood out from the other wives. Her eyes met mine, and she smiled, her lovely face lighting up with pride and appreciation, while her hands gestured to embrace the scene around us. She looked content and serene. On the day of departure, with the weather, if possible, worse than ever, we stood at the doorway, ignoring the battle of the boys, and kissed, hugged, and said our farewells. See you later, alligator, she said in the trite, trendy lingo of our previous era. Like me, she had a teary smile on her face. Choking back my own tears, I began the expected response of, In a while, crocodile but could not complete the silly phrase. I was only too aware that it would be a long, long while before I could expect to see her again. After our two years in Canada, it was likely we would return to Australia, and with international travel still exorbitant, it would be a battle for a return trip to England and then Wales for our family of three, while Mag's new family could barely make the next week's rent. Yes, it would be a long, long time, if ever, that we would be back together again. You are happy, Mags, aren't you? I whispered as JC and Taffy shook hands, and we took our final hug. I don't deserve happy, in the way you mean, she whispered back, but I'm happy to be content. As I look back at my friend to make final contact with those bright blue sparkling eyes, I did not like what I saw there. She shook her head slightly, and for a brief moment I saw the pain and despair that she was hiding. As we drove away, still waving and smiling at each other, I had only one thought. Oh, Mags, what have you done? Have you stuffed up yet again? Thank you for listening to The Golden Girl Part 2, written and narrated and produced by Brianda Cross. Please be sure to listen in to The Golden Girl Part 3, which will be released in a few days. In the meantime, why not visit our website, fastfictionpodcast.com, where you will find appropriate links to this episode. Thank you.